Spirit speaks in stillness. It speaks in silence. It speaks in tenderness. And we are in a sea of information sickness. So it's beholden on us to create space to be spoken to. Like we have to create the invitation. That's critical and not complicated and can be done in many small ways very simply. But it's crucial and fundamental because there's a flow of energy and communication that might be so so unseen that we take it for granted or slough it aside because our faculties are caught up receiving something else that's just louder. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is East Forest, a visionary artist and musician whose work centers around creating transformative soundscapes for healing and journeying. East Forest is a multidisciplinary artist known by some for his five-hour-long album Music from Mushrooms, designed to accompany a psychedelic journey. Other folks may know him from his album Ramdas, where he created beautiful soundscapes around interviews he did with Ramdas. In fact, the last known interviews ever done with Ramdas before he passed on into the next realm. Some people may know him from his podcast, Ten Laws with East Forest, an extraordinary interview podcast where he talks with the likes of Duncan Trussell, Aubrey Marcus, Danica Patrick. I haven't heard that one. That sounds good. And he has found it's this unique way to combine music, meditation, technology, and the experience of deep listening as a doorway, as a pathway towards acknowledging our own human essence. I think it's fair to say that his creations are not just musical compositions. They are gateways to encounters designed to encourage introspection. And if you get lucky, some kind of magic. So in this episode, we dive deep into East Forest's thoughts around the creative process. We talk about his humble beginnings when he was an up and coming Brooklyn musician, 2008, around the time of Occupy Wall Street. And we speak about the success that he's enjoyed since then, this incremental success and how actually success can kind of make the creative process that much more difficult. We get into a little bit about AI and how it's coming for musicians, the ambient musicians in particular. AI is going to come to them first and what can be done about this. And we, of course, chat about his collaboration with Ramdas and how the track Sit Around the Fire, a collaboration with John Hopkins that was released on John Hopkins' album Music for Psychedelic Therapy was created. I just love this dude. I love his commitment to simple honesty, to discipline, to ritual, to reverence, to creativity above all else. He's good people and a great artist. One of my most enjoyable conversations in recent memory. Let's get into it with East Forest. Thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Vessel. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, excited to be here. Been a fan of the pod for a long time. And I can't really remember why we haven't connected until now, but I remember I ran into you a few times. You were here during a really special psychedelics weekend called Entheo Wheel. Yeah, that was still really COVID, sort of the second part of it. That was great. Yeah, I met some really cool people that I've stayed in touch with. Some really important like connections there have blossomed into other things in the world. And you came to Esalen for the first time in 2017 with Mikey Siegel, right? He's a biohacking type of fellow? Yeah. I got connected to Mikey and he was doing this thing called Group Flow there. He had a residency. So he was bringing different collaborators in and I was doing some music. This is a wild thing because he connected people to all these like electrodes, you know, <laughs> yeah. their heart rate, their breathing, their emotional response, which is an interesting one. And then all of that data... 
your heart rate and your breathing in particular would go into these little light things, these little balls that could light up in different colors. And that represented like your heart and you could pass your heart to someone else and they would hold your beating heart. And then we connected it to like a subwoofer, which sounds fun, but actually it's very powerful to hear your own heartbeat amplified in such a way or, or hold someone else's or all of that data would aggregate into like one collective beat in the middle, this light that could go. And then I would take that same information. I could change their hearts or breathing into like frogs or crickets. And then I'd play music to it. Yeah. Outstanding. It was wild. It was so wild. (laughs) (laughs) I have video of that from, from back in the day, if you ever would like me to share with you, Um, you know, what would be a good, a good way to ground this conversation is for you to talk about how do you introduce yourself as an artist? Is it, it's more than just musician, right? You know, to be honest, I don't tend to like over introduce or try to qualify it. But when I think about it, yes. And I think there's a lot of intentionality in trying to present it as more than uh, only music. I'd say music is by far the deep roots of the tree. Like it's the base. Mm. Uh, but we branch off from there. I think the whole the whole tree of, of the East Forest Project is about tools for introspection or tools for inner fortitude, various doorways of, of invitation inside because I'm a big believer that that's the medicine needed today more than anything is empowering people to go within because all those answers are within and the kind of change we want to see in the world comes from the inside out. And I think a lot of the narrative being presented today is the opposite which is quite disempowering. And, and it's very lonely as a, additionally to feel like, yeah, it's going to come from the outside in. So we do retreats like at Esalen. That's just another like amazing flavor, but it might be um, like I'm working on a documentary called Music for Mushrooms. That's like another some people, that's their thing. Well, talk to me a little bit about the upcoming retreat at Esalen. I'm curious what you and your partner Rada will be offering. How, how will you be organizing the, the weekend? Yeah, you know, our retreats, We've been doing them for a while, and they've always centered around a place, you know, around a landscape and land. And Esalen is special, obviously, because of the place. Yeah, and and then within that, we've been we've been making a retreat that's a lot around how do you use music as a tool. And it's sort of like I just described with my project. We're, we're gonna then we provide lots of different types of modalities with music to see kind of like which ones fit for you best. Hmm as a participant, and then maybe you're kind of building your own recipe as you walk away. So that's everything from ceremony together, where the music is guiding a ceremony, or maybe it's the next day in a yoga movement class, and maybe that's your thing, or maybe it's with breath work, or maybe it's the co-creating music together, or maybe it's about active listening and listening to the sounds of nature, and or lots of things that play with sound and music. Hmm. And then you're seeing which ones are sort of working for you. And they're all experiential as opposed to theoretical. Hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Now, how do people who are your people, who come to Esalen, who come to festivals for you, who who follow you, how do they know about you? Is it through the like the doorway of psychedelics? It's been 15 years, and so it's been a very slow, organic process of just going out there and, and doing lots of events and releasing music for such a long time that I, I don't always know. I'm like, how, you know, there haven't been like these big leaps, like, you know, you did this thing. Uh, but I do find that for better or worse, 
you know, people will say things like, oh yeah, you're the mushroom guy. Or, uh-huh. you know, now they, I think now more often than not, when people are coming to the concerts, even if it's not one of our lie down concerts, we do these concerts where you can, it's more ceremonial. And I, I love doing those, but you can't always find a space, right? And they'll come assuming that like, why can't we lie down? <laughs> and I and it used to be we had to educate people like you can lie down, you should bring stuff to be comfortable. Now it's more like there's these assumptions, which I, I love. Um, so maybe it's the psychedelic angle because that is how I began. I, all of this began in mushroom ceremonies 15 years ago. And so... Uh, maybe it's it's natural and right that that is the uh, forward-facing identity, but it's by, not by any means like the cake itself. It's the icing on the cake. It's just another, it's a pretty powerful tool in the toolkit, but it's uh, it's not like the point of what I'm doing. Yeah, I seem to talk about it a lot. <laughs> Would you be open to walking me through that sort of inception of your creative process? Like bring me back to 2008 Brooklyn and what's going on for, for you at that time? Well, if you remember, the world was ending. That was one of the other times when the financial collapse was happening, Occupy Wall Street. And we really were. There was that time where we were thinking this could be it, total financial collapse. And that was scary. And I was living in Brooklyn, in Dumbo, under the Manhattan Bridge. And I was previously in my 20s in New York. I'd been there a while, and I was really hustling with music. But it was um, these bands. I had a band, and I was in some other bands. Much more like piano pop or psychedelic rock and I was real I was pushing really pushing that stuff and it wasn't really working I was young I was chasing it's like the fame game you think that's what you're trying to do like a lot of people in New York and things were just falling apart so externally they're falling apart and then I noticed internally within my relations in my own life things were kind of falling apart and looking for a change and then I just started through that collapse of just like you know, many years of just things collapse, you build it back up, they collapse, you build it back. I'm finally kind of just being like, I'm so tired. Like, you know, some things that bubble up, just they eventually won't stop and they just start to emerge. And you're like, all right, I just, I just want to make music for myself. I don't, I'm like, screw it. I'm not even gonna try and sell it. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to, you can't, no one would even like this. (laughs) I don't even, and it's really just for me, truly just for me. And I was remember being in my my room and uh, and I put on headphones and I was not wanting to sing much anymore and because there was all this baggage with that and not wanting to be in a band anymore, all this baggage with that. So I was like, I'm just going to do it myself for, for fun. And I started making music that reminded me of a couple experiences I had had with mushrooms and music. Like there was a particular like truth and feeling mm. and I was just chasing that feeling and so I made that I made that music for like a year, um, and it was just I was having a lot of fun mm. and just enjoying the process creatively. And a year later, I I listened to it with mushrooms as a way of honoring that process. And I had a, a very transformative listening experience that changed my life and birthed all of. I mean, I feel like it was that moment when everything it was like a new soul came in or something. And wow! Then I was like, all right, I'm leaving New York. <laughs> I I not making that other music anymore. Everything's going to be free in the spirit of the gift. It was all just like, and no plan. Just like, I just felt transformed. And that was by far enough. And then very slowly, uh, a friend of mine named Lewis, a dear brother who we still work together, one of my best friends, he started, we had just met 
and I gave I was giving people the music for free. Back then, you would buy music, like down, <laughs> <laughs> and I would just it was like Creative Commons, and he got really into that record, and he's like, "We're gonna, I'm gonna set up some circles. You should play mm-hmm. for some people. We use this record." And I'm like, "You're crazy, dude!" And but we did it. He just kind of pushed me into it, and he just kept setting up more and more and more, and the years went by, and thousands of people came through, and he ended up starting a psychedelic church, and here we are. And I just kept doing the music. Well, what's fantastic, I mean, there's so much uh, of what you just said that that made an impact on me and the use of lack of ego to get into a state of appreciation and without pushing creativity is just so, I mean, that's so enormous. And I'd love for you to speak about whether you've been able to keep that as you've sort of gained success and gained acolytes to your to the school of music. Yeah, it's more of a challenge. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because the carrots and the sticks, oh, the carrots, there's more carrots. And so it's easier to get lost in, oh, that would be really cool. Or, oh, I've always wanted to do that thing or whatever. So I'm constantly having to go back to the North Star of why am I doing this? What is the driving motivation? And I get lost all the time, probably almost every day. And I notice that my discomfort or pain essentially anxiety, depression is largely from the grasping and the desire. The medicine that's the best for me, the antidote is this energy of like, it all works out and I don't need to have a plan or goals or really, but what's tricky, as we know, you do have to make plans, right? (laughs) Like the more stuff, like it just gets complicated, you know, and there's many things you have to decide. You're constantly having to say yes and no to things that are very far in the future. And you're trying to be like, you can't ignore the business side of it. So in the past, I would just like, I wasn't trying, there wasn't any money and I wasn't trying to make money. Mm. But now it's like, well, it is my job. And I actually have half a dozen people on the payroll and, you know, and uh, commitments, real commitments that I can't uh, walk out. I could, I don't want to be that guy who leaves people in the lurch. So it's tricky. It's tricky that way. It really is. Um, and to be t- totally honest, you know, here I am 15 years in and I did not anticipate where the landscape would be with psychedelics now in such a yeah. public way. I think I just thought like, oh, if they're legal, that's awesome, right? Or like, and I, I just didn't think about the commercialism aspect or the spiritual materialism and being a part of that and being like, I have mixed, I have mixed feelings about it. And sometimes now wanting to just like pull out, just be like, I think I might need at best to take a year off or at worst to just be done. <laughs> and, and, and I know that's my own, that's that in itself is my own like ego wanting to be like, well, I want, you know, you're forgetting about the service when you feel that feeling. And, but you got to find a balance, man. You're we're all human. And I suffer from burnout uh, and anxiety about like, we're leaving for Europe in a couple days and, I think 10 years ago, I would have been like, that's a dream. Like, and now I'm just like, man, this is stressful, scary, difficult, logistically challenging. Will the dates that you'd be doing in Europe, will they be sort of like larger festivals or they'd be smaller kind of rooms where you people, like when you were talking about circles earlier, I'm, I'm thinking that people were taking psychedelics and listening to your music is that back in the day, what does your Europe tour look like? It's a bit of all of that. Um, some of them are big festivals. There's one called Beyond the Pale in Ireland. That's very like mainstream. Dreamers Land in Poland. I think that's a little more in the consciousness realm, but I think it's a 10,000 person uh, rooms or something. 
but then we're doing a date in Iceland. I love Iceland. And so I just wanted to play there. And so I reached out just to the community and we're doing a small show mm -hmm. on the way. And that'll probably be more like the medicine thing. It, it's really varies, which is also a bit of a challenge. You have to just kind of find a system and a way to play and rehearse and be ready for. And they're all, they're not completely different by any means. Um, but I have to keep trusting too and not thinking like a big trap is pandering. You're like, oh, this audience or this gig wants me to do blank, so I need to do blank, as opposed to like what wants to happen. Or just do do your thing. Like do be open to the improvisation and letting it flow through, which is terrifying, right? But that's often, I think, the point of what I'm doing. And I, mm. I can get scared and be like, I need to really create a set here. And it's it's usually a balance between the two. You got to leave openness for free form. Well, I know you just played the Bottle Rocket festival with like bottle rock yeah bottle rock sorry bottle rock with yeah. like Lil Nas X was there and Wu-Tang yeah. so yeah we were like hanging with Keanu Reeves backstage it was a trip that's how we ended the night not the name drop but it was like it was just weird it was like there's Keanu Reeves like smoking a cigarette at a backstage like let's hang <laughs> so it's like you hang for a while it's like yeah, this is not the average festival I'm at. And how did it go? Like, how did your set go? Were people sort of like feeling it? Yeah. I mean, again, people came and they just like, they just like parked themselves, like ready to lie down. I was like, oh, okay. But it, I played at 11.45 in the morning too. So I was like one of the first acts, which is hard, right? Mm. And I was grateful to be there. Uh, I struggled a bit with the performance, I think, just because I had a technical thing where like it was so bright that I couldn't see my buttons. Mm -hmm. And I had to build this like, I very quickly found like a cardboard box and built like a box so I could see. It didn't, it kind of worked, but it also made it hard to play and it looked weird. And so it, it was, it kind of threw me a little bit. I always, I always want any show to be like, oh, it was just total ecstatic. And I was, I hit the zone a few times. We all hit it together. And that one I felt like, we brushed up against a few zones, but I, you know, and I was, I think there was more pressure for me too. And that was hard when you have that kind of pressure, you want to just be like, whatever, no big deal. But you know, when you fly somewhere and you do this and you get there, you wake up, you set up. It's like you, having the attitude of no big deal is tough when you're by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that there's so many challenges in terms of like being a performer, but then also coming back into the studio and creating new albums on a pretty consistent basis. You created kind of recently an album called Music for Mushrooms. 2019 Music for Mushrooms. And that was five hours designed, obviously, for to guide. And the full title is Music for Mushrooms, a soundtrack for the psychedelic practitioner. And I did like a volume two called In. Uh, in a couple years ago. And then right now I'm working on a follow-up to that for the documentary that might be eight hours, but that might be my last one. I'm not sure because I'm, I'm just where the landscape is and AI and the economics of it. And I mean, putting out long form albums is truly against the grain of every algorithm <laughs> and economic model of music, but it, I know it's helpful, but it's like at a certain, it's a longer side story if we want to get into that whole subject i'm interested i don't want to be a bitchy musician but it's uh well as you know i th i think music is sort of the unsung hero and the thing we're not talking about much in the psychedelic therapy renaissance that's happening yes and a lot of people 
truthfully don't have, they don't know what to do or say. They just don't have that expertise. And then there aren't many, hardly at all, modern musicians exploring that space. And they're not largely because I think for two reasons. One, there's not an economic incentive because right now a lot of these clinics are just using Spotify and stuff illegally to guide journeys that cost thousands of dollars and the musicians are technically guiding it. Not always, but sometimes. They're certainly playing a huge role and they don't get remunerated. Mm. So it's hard to convince other artists to say, hey, you should you should make a very long piece. That's hard to, you know, that takes a long time, really as an act of service. Uh, and the other aspect of it is that there's some judgment to it. It's when you start to dance into those spaces, whether it's even yoga or psychedelics, it's not that those things aren't accepted culturally. It's inside the music sphere. The mainstream music press and, and world kind of just puts that, they kind of poo-poo it. They're like, oh, it's too woo-woo or you're not making cool art because you're talking about things like spirituality. And I went full full force into that. So I've kind of had to like claw my way back and keep knocking on the doors. And I've had, you know, quite recently, um, even agents that we're talking about working with and they're like, everything looks good. The numbers, the team, everything. I love the music, but I don't know, this whole, it's kind of like out there, new agey, woo woo. And I'm like, in your mind, but the music is right up there with the clients you represent, right? Like literally in the same world. And but they can't get past that sometimes. So I think for some musicians, they don't want, they're afraid to open up. It's a sense of vulnerability to really go there. And they don't want to be put into a certain box because a lot of a lot of it is about perception, you know? Mm, yeah. And you're trying to get like, I don't know how many times I've had someone write about me and they, they call me a yoga DJ. Uh-huh. I, I'm not a yogi and I've never DJed a day in my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they just write it and... So it's, I think that's a fear. Yeah. Snark, snarky. Yeah. I interviewed John Hopkins about a year ago. Oh, cool. When his album Music for Psychedelic Therapy came out. And uh, an interesting part about that is, you know, I'm thinking about you and you created Music for Mushrooms. And I, during the course of our conversations, John was talking about his album actually being a perfect soundtrack for a ketamine experience. And he had timed it out and he'd had profound ketamine experiences. Yeah. My favorite track on there was a collaboration with you, Sit Around the Fire, where you use a, a Ramdas, part of a Ramdas speech, and you create a really moving, warm track that, that has made me cry, honestly. And, and I'm not the only person. Like, me too. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, it, I, well, props to John. That was mostly John. Um, he's a master. I want to give him credit for doing what I just said. A lot of musicians are afraid of. Like, he's someone who's uh, built a career very well respected in the music world and just put himself out there like that with an entire record called Music for Psychedelic Therapy, which was a risk and he did not have to do that. And he did it. And I'm just like, good for you, man. So he's one of the rare ones that leans in like that and takes those risks. And he really up-leveled the whole space in a way that I was so grateful for. Because there, are, again, there aren't a lot of musicians of that caliber bringing their talents to the fore in that space. Although many of them have been inspired by that space or work in that space, or it's a big wellspring of inspiration. Mm. And I think we're going to see more in cultural acceptance. John helped that. I would like to see it supported in economic models, but we haven't really gotten to the place like where music is yet 
recognized for its importance and role. Like I think we've spent a lot of time on legality to some degree on access, which is great. And then the science. Now I think we can bring in the creative and the artistic in a way to really let that flourish and explore, okay, what can we do in this space? And how can we like really like what colors can we paint with? How can we, I mean, all the different ways we could use music intentionally. And I started a company with, with Lewis and Rada called Journey Space that's still up, journeyspace.com, where we wanted to lead journeys online, but we also providing a musical library. That one part of it was to provide turnkey music that's long form, ready to go. So you don't have to know much. You could be a therapist wanting to get into the space. You just hit play, like we got you. But it also is a platform that is fairly paying back the creators. And it it's only a few bucks, you know, I think it was, it's very cheap, but the point is, I wanted to have that be viable so that I could bring in other artists, almost like a music label. Mm. And that's still a dream of mine, but I think we're a little ahead of our time because we really can't overcome the, the Spotify bias and the complete lack of knowledge of people. They just don't understand what they're even doing. They, do, they don't understand. They're just like, I don't know. I love your music. I'm using, it's great. Thank you. And I'm like, <laughs> cool. Check out Journey Space. They're like I have, but I love my playlists. And I'm like, never mind. I'm glad it helps. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tough one. It's a really, it's a really complicated one. Well, for an individual, I'm like awesome, right? I just never thought way back when that there would be publicly traded companies or um, ne- I didn't know how to navigate that space. So I think we're working it out. It's very, very new. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, just around that that track, sit around the fire. Why did you feel impelled to create music working with Ram Dass's recorded words? Well, I recorded Ram Dass the same year I did the music for Mushroom Album. So we recorded that in 2018. And he's just someone that I was deeply inspired by. And he was a teacher of mine from afar. And I, I've i worked with spoken word and recordings that I make. And I just, I don't know, I had a clear vision of what that could be. And so I I got permission from Raghu Marcus, who runs the foundation, to go over there and, and record Ram Dass in 2018, which was a just magical experience and very life-changing and unfolded over a couple of years just before his, his passing. And I, we didn't know, of course, at the time that it would turn out to be his last recorded teachings. As far as I know, he didn't really, he kind of stopped talking much after that. And it was, just, that was the Ram Dass album. And then some years went by and Raghu was just really keen on doing something with his older recordings, like something back from when he was pre-stroke in the seventies or something. And I've never, I had up to that point, never worked with recordings that weren't ones I recorded myself. Mm. And so I was a little like, I don't know. And I also didn't even know where to start. There's so many recordings of Ram Dass. I didn't really want to dig through. I think there's 15,000 hours, but we did just kind of started slowly going through talks and I was looking for a particular flavor and I wasn't finding it. And eventually I heard this talk from 1975 in Massachusetts and he was talking to uh, at a Presbyterian church and he was really tapped in, just really open hearted and soft. And there's a lot of religious stuff in the talk because he knew who he was talking to. Mm. It was about two hour talk. So a lot of stuff about Jesus and Muhammad and, and it's very religious, but amidst in between all that, there were these universal themes. And so I started chopping that up and I cut it down to about 10 or 15 minutes, maybe 10. And I thought this could work. And I just thought it'd be cool to bring on another artist instead of just me doing it and try again to reach more people. 
And John and I had just been introduced by Anna, DJ Anna, who I just had on my podcast. Really, she just released a really awesome album that's very like introspective, and that's that's a cool story because she's a techno DJ, one of the biggest in the world. But her first record she put out is like introspective music, and we did a track, and she, and she's anyway. She introduced me to John, and I just pitched John. I was like, Hey, John, you know, I'm, I have this recording here. It is. It's ten minutes. Are you interested in? collaborating and he listened to it and he's like yes and i was so excited and then he said just just you start it that's all i ask and then i'll do the next step and that was pretty nerve-wracking because i was a big fan i am a big fan of john so i sent him a track and then he basically took that and made what you heard to be honest like he took it and just it's so good (laughs) what he did and he cut down the music the talking to i don't know you know four or five minutes. So he, he also then selected different from, he kind of did another edit. And then that became, he was kind of working on this other ambient music. And then he thought, you know, would you be cool if I folded this into this record? And I think I'm going to call it music for psychedelic therapy. And I was like, hell yeah, like do that. And it's going to be my next record on Domino, which is his record label that he works with. The whole thing was just like, I couldn't believe it was all happening. So I, I'm overjoyed that that track is in the world because I learned a lot from him and I, I we got to feature an older Ram Dass recording and it's that track is John's a big artist it's so it's gotten around and it's it's made a lot of waves and it truly is I don't know about you have you experienced it on medicine of any kind no I would recommend it because <laughs> I've experienced it in the ketamine space and at once um, with MDMA and it was it was unreal it's like Ram Dass is in another dimension yes it's it's hard to explain but he actually (laughs) becomes the voice of one in a way like this he is because he was channeling it in that moment he he really is such a pure space and it brings so many tears to my eyes as well oh man absolutely and i just want to mention that the video that was made for that Mm. song is absolutely phenomenal too it's very tasteful definitely go look at that it uses illustration in uh in a really inventive but non-corny way. They animated the Be Here Now book. Yeah, that's what that video, I mean, it's really, really well done. Earlier, just briefly, you mentioned AI, and I want to ask you, in your opinion, is AI, where does it Where does it land? Is it a useless little toy? Is it something that's going to unlock creativity for millions of people? It's a big subject, so just let's just talk about music. Um, yes, music, of course. I think generative music will rapidly dilute recorded music pretty soon. And I believe it will probably get to a place where it's so diluted that we'll think of recorded music just like, I mean, it's just it's just like air. It's like whatever you want. It's like a replicator. And that makes me sad. Quick question for you. When you say it's going to dilute it, you're talking about the fact that it's just there's going to be so many tracks. Do you think that the quality of those AI tracks can approach the quality of the like recorded by musician tracks? I think they will. I, I, don't, I think it's exponential growth. I mean, right now, of course it's not, but everyone's focused on what's happening right now. It's like, you don't understand. This will move so fast. There's 100,000 songs uploaded to Spotify right now by humans. Mm-hmm. A few years back, it was like 20,000. And that's that's part of the same digital revolution of making music on your laptops, which I'm a part of. You know, 2000 is when I started making music. It was because I could do it on my laptop. And it opened up the... That's awesome, right? 
So in some ways, AI is pulling from, uh, it's generative from human-made things. Yes. So it is another form of human-made music, but it will get to a place when when the majority of the music is from that, and it's, then it's pulling from itself in a way. I don't know what that landscape will be like. The same will be true for information and articles. Like eventually the AI is pulling from other AI written articles, and you get in this feedback loop of like, I don't know what that'll turn into. But from a music point of view, the first genres that are going to be washed out will be like ambient and and wellnessy and spa stuff, which is already sometimes the, you know the, already the most washed out creatively. But because it's easier to do mm. from a computer standpoint, mm. and you're going to see even in these clinics, there already are certain businesses that are providing generative music, but it's it's like um, Endel or Wavepass is more based off of human composers. But when you just put an AI in and they can make like as many of these as you want and cheaply, it's difficult to compete because the average place is is a bit economic and less about taste. Now, I just want to add to this that I'm talking about recorded music and I I could be wrong, of course, um, but, and I don't think we'll stop listening to humans at all. Actually, I I do think in real life, would become far more valuable and important and bigger. Retreats, bigger. Because as a symptom of the digitized, we're going to be very hungry for the human interaction, the, the ephemeral and the authentic. We already are. Yep. I mean, that's, that's a symptom of social media and so forth. So just imagine that highly amplified. And I don't necessarily think that's just all like rosy and like, great. It's like, no, I mean, it's going to be coming from a sense of lack <laughs> and despair. Like, more information, more stuff coming at us. There'll be more of us, I think, in the coming years moving into this movement of like putting your phones away or uh, that's that's on the fringes now. But I mean, it'll become like a fundamental part of life where in the same way we think about diet in individualistic ways, but it's the more conscious, so to speak, you get, the more you start thinking about what you're eating. I think with our information diets, we're fairly unconscious now, hmm. myself included, or, you know, we're more aware but we're still pretty locked into our phones. I think we'll start to have stronger movements. Like Eslin, we were just talking before we started about the internet at Eslin. Like that kind of was an advantage, right? Yeah. Coming there. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's more of a thing. It's like, no, like the phones, you can't even have them out. Like that's why we're here. No, you see people talking all the time on phones in the lodge now. My wife and I were just chatting about it last night. Could you envision a future where you and other real musicians use AI tools to create a different type of music, you know, that you possibly wouldn't have tried before? Like, is there a way that that the two things can coexist? Yes. Yes. And there will be tools that don't exist yet that will just further, like, there's more paintbrushes to paint with. And, And those already exist in music mixing and creation right now. And I use some of them. It's basically like dynamic EQs and noise suppression and all sorts of cool things that like are awesome tools mm. and those are based off of the same idea so yeah i don't want to be a debbie downer completely about it i think it will be a both and in the same way that like a phone is a both and like it's pretty terrible and of course it's amazing i mean here we are right now like doing a podcast that you couldn't do this a few years back and now you can oh yeah and it really opens up a lot of options. Yeah, it's wild. I used to have fantasies about having video calls when I was a child, and I was 100% certain that it would never happen. Right? 
<laughs> and now we're having one and it's sort of like no big deal. It becomes normalized really quickly. Yeah. With decent internet, like the lag is fairly minor and I mean, it'll just get better and better. And so all of this comes back to individual choice and you're, you're curating your own life and your own attention. That's really where it all lands with. And, and that goes back to like remembering and giving space for the in, internal and for the numinous and the unseen to be able to speak to you. And that is something you do have to create space for, especially now and even more so in the future. Mm. Can you say that again and, and talk to me a little bit about how you do that? Well, I often like the phrase that spirit, I just call it spirit. You could call it anything you like. It speaks in stillness. It speaks in silence. It speaks in tenderness. And we are in a sea of information sickness. And that's going to increase. So it's beholden on us to create space to be spoken to. Like we have to create the invitation, as Bio Akamalafe would say. And that's, that's critical and not complicated and can be done in many small ways very simply. But it's, it's crucial and fundamental because spirit is speaking to us. There's a, there's a flow of energy and communication that might be so, so unseen that we take it for granted or slough it aside because our faculties are caught up receiving something else that's just louder. Um, anything from, from email to multitasking to caffeine to whatever. That in itself is a dopamine drug. That's It's a train that's a little hard to get off. Um, but we can start to cultivate this ability to listen. And so a lot of what we do at Esalen at the retreat is about the art of listening and learning how to listen in all of its different forms. But again, it's not complicated. It's about active listening versus passive listening, mm. which is you know, methods of just where you're choosing to put your attention. And a lot of this can be fun. It can be beautiful. It can be artistic. And it should be as opposed to a chore, like I have to just sit and just bear through it. You know, it's like, if you wish, <laughs> but maybe you can put your attention on some really thoughtful music and mm. see what that opens up for you or, or so forth and so on. So it's creating the invitation to be spoken to. Mm, love that. Yeah, that's great. I'd like to ask you about how you create your work. Do you, do you have rituals around your creative process? Like I'm assuming you don't just like jump into the, to the studio and start creating like very introspective music. I kind of do. Uh, <laughs> I actually like, it's sort of the anti-ritual because I can overthink things. And so a lot of what I have to do is sort of downplay it externally. Like no big deal. Like uh -huh. I remember I was in a studio with Lorraine Weiss who played saxophone on the Ram Dass record on this song called uh, Love Everyone. I think it's the last song on the record. <laughs> I remember she came in and She's a big Ramdas devotee, and we were about to start. And she's like, "Well, wh hold up. I mean, I, should we do like do an invocation?" Uh -huh. Or I was like, "Nah, just don't even think about it. No big deal. We're just making noise. Like, just throw spaghetti on the wall." And uh, my creative process in creating is a lot like that, where I, I try not to think about it too much. But that being said, I do think discipline's a big part of it. It's showing up, mm -hmm. and the ritual is more like I'm going to do it pretty much at roughly the same time every day. And I'm creating the structure and the space to do it. And there is a method to the, to this apparent madness, but I try to not overtly, because if you make it too special, nothing can come through because it has to be special. Uh -huh. And the best stuff comes through when you're in a state of play, when it's just like, let's do something weird or like, oh, this is fun or like, no one's going to hear this 
or it's a mistake. And then you're like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, it just happened to me yesterday when I was mixing something. I muted the wrong thing and I was like, that is better. <laughs> like, you know, so uh, less is more kind of thing. But in the live space, it's, it, I'd say a little more ritualistic because I get nervous and, you know. Uh huh. Okay. Well, in terms of discipline, were you always kind of a disciplined person? Yeah. Yeah. My father is extremely disciplined. And so I, I learned that from him. And I've had to spend a lot of years trying to unravel that a bit and unlearn it. But I've also, it's a, it's a great asset that he taught me just about being able to have a work ethic and be organized. And But I'm trying to have a little less of that, like less of the goals and plans, because inevitably that's then what you become frustrated by, hmm. that they aren't working out as you planned. And I, I want, that's in some ways, I think that's me not trusting divinity in a way. And I'm like, why can't I just trust that I am held fully and that my job is to show up and the rest will unfold as opposed to I have to manipulate as many of the steps along the way as I can. And that's probably the edge I'm working with. Yeah, I can I can tell that you're disciplined, if only by the fact that your podcast, 10 Laws, has 262 episodes. You know, you come out, you come out weekly, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I keep thinking I'm going to go twice a month, but I ha occasionally I'll skip a week. But yes, it's been weekly. And podcasts are interesting, right? It's I'm just trying to think like, what to do with it. I just keep doing it and I enjoy it. And I've had such amazing conversations and I'm just, I don't know. I just, it's like this thing that I just keep doing <laughs> and I enjoy doing it, but I forget it that I'm doing it in a way. Well, you're, you're great at it. You know, you're natural at it. And so maybe that's part of the reason why you keep doing it. But yeah, one of the questions that I had for you was how can you tell whether your podcast is a success or not? What do you want from it? What does it give to you? Well, I'm not going to say it's, it's about numbers or listeners because I would say the way I feel successful is if I'm presenting and representing myself as authentically as I can, I probably get about 85% there. I hold things back. No, absolutely. And some things probably should be held back, right? But at the same time, some of my favorite things I listen to are ones where I really feel like it's the most authentic thing. And I'm like, wow. What are some of your favorite episodes that you've created? I mean, other people's podcasts, you know, but of my own, like, well, Bioako Malafe is one of my favorites for sure. Um, I think just because he brought such an openness and I just felt so inspired. I ended up sampling it for a song on an album for my possible album. And I've had so many good conversations on there that I just love the ones that surprise me. Or it's like, mm. and I, what I love about podcasting is I get to be in the place of listening a lot and taking that seat. And I'll, I'll have conversations with people I know for a long time. And just from that structure and mechanism, I actually learn more about them because I just, we had this format of like, well, you're the guest and I'm more in the listening role. And I ended up, surprise, surprise, I've known this person for 10 years. And I'm like, wow, I actually learned yeah. a lot about you. It's magical. Yeah. I, I was listening to a, an interview you did with BJ Miller to prepare for my own interview with, with, um, with BJ Miller. Yeah. I love BJ. I just saw BJ. Uh, we did an event together last week in California and that was just a joy to see him. Funny thing about him and I is like, we live in the same tiny town in Southern Utah of 200 people, which is like, what are the odds of that? Like I've leaned more into talking to people that I kind of know or through degrees mm -hmm. or it comes to me pretty naturally. Occasionally, uh, there's a few publicists out there who 
I like that pitch me stuff, but I have to be careful because I might be interested in the subject matter, but then they might have a hard time getting off their like book tour <laughs> thing. And I'm just like, come on. <laughs> well, what, what excites come you? Come out, please. What do you feel like is your remaining challenge as an artist? Because you have achieved success in a way that I think a lot of young artists are really looking to, to do in that you decided to do your own thing and you have gained, you know, an audience for your thing. So what, what remains for you? What are the kind of challenges that you are, that are in your sort of like, you know, vantage point? God, I mean, I don't usually sit back on laurels and think like, okay, I arrived or anything. Um, I, I almost never do actually. And so actually, I'm so forward thinking. I think it's a bit of a problem. You know, I have to be honest, like I'm very fortunate because culture aligned with what I was doing in a, in a certain way that like my work is relevant and that aligned with a timing of my own development as an artist that is truly just divine. I can't take credit for that. Like I wasn't 15 years ago or even 10, I really wasn't ready to do or play certain things. And I also wasn't being offered those. Mm. And then as I've slowly certain opportunities came, I felt more and more prepared. And that just felt like divine alignment. Like when you're younger, you can think, oh man, I want to play Madison Square Garden. You know, I'm like, well, you're not ready to play Madison, but you'd want to anyway. You probably would if someone gave you the chance. I don't know if I'm ready right now, but I still want to. And I want to think I could be ready, mm. but I know that those things will happen as they need to happen or if they should happen. But I do know that like, I feel very grateful to, it's the greatest job in the world to be able to create art that you want to create and then other people find it meaningful and just even listen. I mean, that alone is like, wow, how amazing is that? Like truly, uh, and it in the digital age, it just gets weird because you make something, right? You make it largely alone or with collaborative. You make something. And then when you're finally done with it, like I just started releasing a record. My new record's called uh, Music for the Deck of the Titanic. And the first the first single's out. And But I, I finished that a while ago. And you, it's kind of like a little boat you put out into the ocean and you kick it off and you're like, have a good journey. And then you, you kind of, it's gone. It's like a kid that went to college and they never came home. And then, but then every now and then you'll, you'll run into someone at a festival or something, an event. And they're like, Oh, I had this journey. They tell you this story. And you're like, I'm so proud of my little boat that's out there, like <laughs> meeting people. And like, I just don't feel responsible for it anymore. Like, it's like, it's just doing its thing. It's been digitized. It's like a spore that starts to grow. And mm. all you did was plant it. Mm. And then other people tend the garden and other people, pull the weeds and, and, and share it. And I just think that's beautiful. And I would like to, uh, I'm working, I, this documentary we're working on is something I'm really excited about. I think because it's a new format for me and it's very difficult and very, very big and very collaborative. And so I'm overwhelmed in a way, but that's why it feels exciting creatively. And I'm excited to explore more retreats and I'm excited to explore more collaborations. And I love collaborating that way because I like with John, I, I learn things and I, I get to approach things in ways I wouldn't know. Otherwise it's, it, it's hard when you're by yourself as a solo artist is you want to work with people just to open up your different wavelengths of doing. Um, so 
and I like doing that through cross modalities too. So beyond just music, like the thing with BJ was um a, like a class, like so it was it wasn't even music, and so I I love that. I look forward to like more like so basically things I couldn't even conceive yet, whether through technology or people or events. That's what kind of gets me up in the morning. It's like who knows today maybe today i'll meet someone or something or mm. and it'll be like wow never thought i'd be doing this thing and that's exciting i like that i like that a lot yeah all right i just have a couple more questions I want to be respectful of your time i did this fun thing with john where i was asking him about other music that he you know like who does he listen to if he's going to have a journey and i'm wondering if you have any thoughts about musicians who are just wonderful for for journeys who are uh, exciting interesting anything off the, off the top of your head that you feel excited about yeah well john's in that class for sure um often i'm actually working on a record that is for that space and so a lot of times i'm testing out music of my own because i feel like beyond just working on it in the studio or mixing i'm like oh, at some point i need to sort of hand it over to the divine and see what information i get <laughs> so a lot of times we're working with music i'm testing out because I was, when i was making a lot of music for journey space it was a lot of music and it's not released elsewhere and i felt like well we need to test this out and Radha, my partner, is also a ketamine therapist, so we could we had access to go into her clinic. Not only could I ex be an experiencer of that music, but we could also test it with clients, like, which is a pretty great resource. Uh, but artistically, uh, you know, I'm good friends with Justin Beretta, and he's pretty committed to this space, and he's getting more into that space. And Caitlin Aurelius Smith is an artist I admire. And I really think she's doing a lot of innovative, interesting, experimental things. Um, and then there's, I always, one thing I do like about Spotify is my ability to discover music, especially from other countries that I maybe wouldn't come across much. And there's some Japanese artists, Peter Broderick and I did a record called Burren. And uh, he's an amazing musician and I'm very proud of that record. It just came out. And we also did, a, in this studio, a four-hour ceremony, a live imp improvisation, and that's on YouTube. I noticed that you had a collaboration with LaRaji. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's old school. I love LaRaji. He's the best. See, yeah. he, he's like new age. He created new age music, like 80s, right? Yeah. That was one of the more fun podcasts I did with him, because <laughs> he's on another wavelength. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think he was discovered by Brian Eno in Washington Square Park, like playing the electric zither like a long time ago. And then they did a record together that kind of put Laraji on the map. And since then, yeah, he's been one of the main innovators and sort of grandfathers of the space and very active. Mm. I would love to do more with him. But yeah, we did. Um, he worked on the Ram Dass Reworks album bunch of remixes mm. and reworks and I helped him create his track. You know, Esalen's predicated around this notion of human potential. How do you engage with this concept of, of human potential? What does it mean to you personally? I, I think I come from that from a soul perspective. And it's so if you take that lens, the, the purpose of going within and listening is about getting in touch with your purpose and getting in touch with your soul's potential. Because I think like if you really have the mindset or the, the body set of saying, I want to be in service to my soul's purpose, it might not always be what you want on the face of it, but it probably will be 
it definitely is in the long run. So it's sort of like saying, I'm willing to trust and I'm willing to really do what I want, even if I don't quite know yet what I want. So human mm-hmm. potential to me is about the education of the individual soul. As my friend Court Johnson says, who's a teacher and old friend, you know, there's a turning happening and this it's like a bell curve. And if you think about what is needed for a loaf of bread to rise, it's yeast. And yeast is actually a very small additive. So it's not that we need everybody right now to just like wake up and change. It's like, maybe 10%. And that could be enough to get us past the the finish line to a new sort of way. And I think we're getting there. But of course, as it is, right at the right at the buzzer, and (laughs) may not happen. Um, Why, why wouldn't why wouldn't it be designed in such a way to make it like a nail biter, the greatest game of the the Bach tune? You know, (laughs) East Forest, been such a pleasure. I'm so glad we had this conversation. Your workshop, Journey Space, Music, Movement, and Ceremony with Marissa Rada Webner will take place June 30th to July 3rd at Esalen. I'd say register now, but I do believe that it's sold out. But uh, yeah, we'll be back in December and uh, maybe, maybe 2024 if you guys will have us. Oh, absolutely. I think that the collaboration between you all and, and Esalen is a really fruitful one. I'm, I'm so pleased that you're a part of the, the Esalen fabric. We love it. We love it. Yeah. And um, it's we've gotten a nice flow over the years. And so we're digging. It seems to be like something we all enjoy people and place. And Greg's got us dialed every time. So once that happens, we're like, all right, don't change anything. Yeah. Just, oh, my God. Greg's happy. I'm happy. Greg is the best. Uh, East Forest, come back <laughs> on the show another time, okay? Would love to. Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.